0: All right, we come to lesson number five uh, of An Infinite Number on uh, biblical interpretation. You think I'm kidding? Um going take longer than Romans? could. So far, uh, we've talked about really three, uh, three or four basic principles. Uh, overarching principles as we come to this whole idea of how we interpret the Bible. We talked about the nature of God's revelation being verbal, that the spirit of God is the spirit of truth. He's the revealer of truth, and he reveals the truth when he speaks. And when he speaks, he speaks by and through his word, not through feelings or uh, uh, emotions, but through verbal revelation. And his revelation is primarily the revelation of Christ, of Christ's, of who Christ is, what he has done, and the implications and applications of those truths. We considered also uh, that God's revelation is rational. God is a rational God. And he reveals himself in a rational way. And because of that, his word, the word of the Spirit, is a rational word that must be interpreted. The only way it can be rightly interpreted is when it is approached rationally. We considered some things about that. We've also considered a concept of the sufficiency of this verbal, inscripturated revelation, what we call sola scriptura, that scripture alone is that which reveals to us what we are to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. Within the Word of God, then we find truth and righteousness revealed and only within the Word of God. So, with all of those considerations, you would think that we could make a pretty good attempt, then, at understanding the Bible. But we immediately come to a big problem, which is that, Many different hands lay hold of the Bible, open its pages, and teach from its texts a wide variety of contradicting things. So, people who perhaps accept, in many cases, the basic principles of, uh, that we've talked about, that this is the revelation of God's Word, that we must interpret it as His Word, that we must approach it as instruction and teaching in a rational way, yet... <laughs> A knock on the door comes and you find a Jehovah's Witness. And he turns to John 1.1 and tells you in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. And that's right there out of your Bible. In fact, it uh, uh, he, he'll begin with that even in discussing the person of Christ. There he is with the Scriptures. Or perhaps you uh, find a Mormon friend and discussing with you the legitimacy of this other revelation of Jesus Christ, this other testament of Jesus Christ. And he says, but in John 10:16, Jesus says, other sheep I have who are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and then there will be one fold and one shepherd. And so Jesus, uh, after leaving Israel, went to America and made revelation there. And so we have this other testament. Or an Adventist tells you to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day, you see, the seventh day, it's in the Word of God. We're talking about the Word of God. Not what I feel or, 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 or that I've mystically received. It's right here in the Word of God. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Uh, that day He rested and, and blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Or even from the very beginning of, of the New Testament church, there were those who came from Judea and taught the brethren and said, unless you're circumcised according to the manner of Moses and keep the law, you cannot be saved. Because this is from the scriptures, from the word of God. Or, or perhaps someone comes and says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, 2 Peter 3, 9, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. To repentance. I mean, this is the word of God. God loves everyone. God desires all men to be saved. So your Armenian friend is turning to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, or, or someone else comes and quotes Deuteronomy and says to you, "Look, God has said, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse." if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. And so, in, 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 in following God's commandments, we can have prosperity and health and wealth and success in life. And in, in breaking God's commandments, we have failure and tragedy. All of this is right out of the Word of God. I mean, all of, not all of these people accept necessarily the concept of, of, of Scripture alone, but yet all of these arguments are fundamentally textual arguments, biblical arguments, dealing with the word of God, accepting the same basic approach that I have been laying out so far. What are we going to do? How are we going to answer these questions? Is it just utter confusion? Can we know nothing? Is there no way or tool of knowing what is true, how to rightly interpret these verses? Now, this becomes a highly disturbing question. It is a highly disturbing question. And, and for some, you see, some, uh, the very idea that there's all of this disagreement and this, this challenge and this, this uh, difficulty, uh, that so many people can come to the Word of God and find so many different things in it, this is a severe problem in the church. Because we must have order in the church of God. We must have, we must have authority. I mean, these are, these, are, these are concerns of God that there be order in His church, that there be doctrinal authority, that there be some standard by which we can judge all of these controversial and contradictory interpretations of the Word. In fact, when it comes right down to it, when it comes right down to it, It looks like this book doesn't really help you a whole lot after all because there's I mean anyone can come to it and find anything. I mean, if we have to have doctrinal order in the church, if truth is absolute, if there's only one thing that's true, not many things, we would all agree on that. If, if in fact, we agree that the truth is necessary for salvation and spiritual life, if, if we agree that heresy and error can be damnable that for believing the wrong thing and practicing the wrong thing, you can be plummeted into an eternal hell forever. If we agree on all that, and yet we find in this word disagreement and confusion and contradiction and an inability to determine the left from the right and the up from the down, because there's so many different opinions, it is inconceivable that God would leave us without certainty. There must be some sort of doctrinal authority. There must be something to tell us what the Scriptures really teach. And so, an answer that has been given time and again through the history of the Church is this one. There is something. Something that is Something that is more solid than all of this contradictory interpretation of this word here. I mean, I mean. in fact, this, this gets to be kind of dangerous, as we can see. All sorts of people coming up with all sorts of wild things. There is something. In the history of the church, you see, especially the early church, there is tradition. There is a, a tradition... An authority becomes, as we consider the teachings of the uh, the earliest men following the apostles. In fact, in fact, some would go so far as to say this. Really, what we have are two lines of revelation. Two lines of revelation. We have tradition, and we have scripture. We have what the apostles wrote, certainly, and recorded in the scriptures. Oh, yes, very much revelation. But then we have this other thing. I mean... Obviously, the apostles went from place to place, didn't they? They were—they didn't just write this. I mean, they're traveling all around for years, decades, even, ministering in cities all over, teaching, preaching. There must have been many things that they established and taught that didn't make it in here, but they did it nonetheless. And what would be the best way to find out these things that didn't make it into the Word? These, 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 these. Uh, Practices these doctrines, where can we find them? Well, stands to reason the best place to find them would be in the post-apostolic church. That's very reasonable. You look at the early church after the time of the New Testament. You determine what their practices were, what their doctrines were. And it seems uh, uh, eminently reasonable that you could then infer backward that that must be really what it is that the apostles taught. And, and this is very reliable, rather than all this confusion over biblical texts. And in fact, in fact, there's evidence from the Scripture itself, isn't there? For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. Or in 2 Thessalonians 3:6, we command you, brethren, command, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after or according to the tradition which he received of us or in Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2:15 earlier in that same letter stand fast brethren and hold the traditions which you have been taught whether by word or our epistle so you see you see as we examine the history of the early church then the argument goes we can find out, we can get some sort, of, some sort of authority, some sort of reliability, some sort of, uh, some sort of parameter or, or, or picture of what the real doctrines were and the real practices were and escape from all of this confusion. Well, in fact, the word... Uh, for tradition there, parodicis, means, in fact, that which is handed down or given over uh, ten times, used thirteen times in the New Testament, ten times of Jewish traditions. Traditions of the fathers in these, these three places here. Now, as we consider this, so how to interpret these verses properly, there's a couple of things we have to remember. First of all, in the New Testament times, the entire canon of scripture wasn't completed. I mean, for example, when Paul began his missionary journeys, there was hardly any scripture that had been written. The only thing you would have had was that which he came and preached to you by his word and what you could remember of it and what you heard from others that he had taught there. He didn't begin writing until time went on. The Gospels were not produced immediately after the life of Christ, but many decades later entire canon of Scripture was not completed until nearly the turn of the first century. So it is not altogether inconceivable that the Apostle would use language such as this. But what we have to understand is what the Apostles taught and what they inscripturated in inspired writing were not different. What they taught by word was not supplementary. In fact, it was the very same thing. We can see the book of Romans, for example, as the digest, if you will, or the the encyclopedia in a condensed version of what Paul would teach as he went to a city and spent time ministering there. And in fact, even as we look at these passages, we find that this isn't really what they're saying. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, I praise you that you keep the traditions that I delivered to you, and then proceeds to go on to a lengthy discussion of worship practice and details exactly what those traditions were of which he was speaking. The Lord's Supper, things of that nature. Second Thessalonians 3.6, I find particularly amusing that anyone would use as a proof text for this idea. Because the tradition that Paul is commending, he goes on to discuss, which is that you would not be an idle person uh, and and live off of the work of others, but that you yourself would uh, essentially go out and work and provide for yourself and be what we would call a uh, profitable member of society, rather than being some idle person waiting around for the coming of the Lord, pretending that it was imminent and so you could just cease working and go up on the mountain and wait. That's the tradition Paul commended to them. The tradition of his own behavior amongst them. Which is something else he refers to elsewhere when he says, Remember these things. Remember how I lived when I was amongst you. Be a follower of me as I am a follower of Christ. These are the traditions the apostle handed down. And then, of course, in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Hold fast the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. The apostle is not saying that there are two strains of revelation. That later on, uh, we would get one thing from the traditions of the early church and another from his writings. Rather, his word and his epistle were the same. It's just, if he was in person, it was his word. And... If he couldn't make it to your place, it was his epistle. But it was the same thing. So these verses don't really go anywhere. But I never stopped those who believe in inspired apostolic tradition. Well, in fact, there's a bigger problem than that, just these verses, and that's this. How can you be certain that the tradition you've identified, this doctrine, this practice, is a reliable one. How many of you have ever played the game, pass it along, where you get in a big circle and somebody starts with something, they whisper it in the ear of the person to their right or left and then they whisper it around, whisper it around, whisper it around, whisper it around, until will find like 25 people later, you know. You started with Aunt Millie served beets for supper and it ends up with eight million swerving bats form stripes. Everybody laughs. See, that's funny, you know. (laughs) Except, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Except we're not talking about 35 people in five minutes. We're talking about hundreds or even thousands of years of passing it along. In In fact, isn't it easily seen that this kind of apostolic tradition is far more easily corrupted, far more easily corrupted than a written text. And in fact, I just have to say that it is a striking fact of history that all of these uninscripturated traditions that we're supposed to embrace and follow almost always end up being totally against exactly what the Scripture teaches. It doesn't end up being supplemental. It ends up being hostile and and contrary to the Scripture. But once you accept this principle of apostolic traditions apart from the Word of God, once you accept this principle, once you accept the comfort that it provides because of the authority, the... The certainty of these long held practices through thousands of years or hundreds of years in the church, you really don't need this at all. You can just put it right aside because you have your authority. You have your answer. You have your clear practices. You know how you ought to worship God. It's the way God has been worshiped for a thousand years. And if it seems that it's contradictory to the Scripture, If it seems that even over time, all sorts of strange practices have built up that weren't even done hundreds of years ago. Well, you just scratch your head and say, but this is the tradition. This is what has been passed down. Well, what is the only way to actually know what it is the apostles practiced and taught? I mean, it's not as if we don't have a record of what the apostles practiced and taught. We have the record of what the apostles practiced and taught in the Scriptures itself. Anything else is at best what we would call hearsay. I come to you and I say, so-and-so said X, Y, Z. Well, you don't know that so-and-so said that. You just know that I'm saying that so-and-so said that. And at worst... It's fabrication. I just make it up. I was with the Apostle Paul and he said this. The Bible, it turns out, is the only test of apostolic preaching and practice. Now, you may correctly identify what I'm talking about here is something that is primarily confined to the Roman Catholic Church. The idea that there are two strains of revelation, the uninscripturated traditions that are passed down by apostolic succession from minister to minister through the history of the Church, and then what's in the Bible. And you may be thinking, "Um, why are you talking about this? Because nobody here is liable to do that. Well, there is another part of this And this is something that is gaining in popularity. It's gaining in popularity, I think, (laughs) directly inverse to how ridiculous it is. But like all heresies, uh, the homeschooling community ultimately will embrace it. And they're embracing this one. And that is the idea. They say this, well, we're not saying that the early church, that we can determine revelation apart from the Scriptures, but we're saying this. We're saying that the ultimate rule or standard for interpreting Scripture is the historical tradition of interpretation within the Church, especially that demonstrated by the early Church Fathers. So, we're not saying that that there's something beyond the Bible, something that's not in the Bible, something we don't know about that we have to get from the early Church. No, 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 no. Now, we're saying that we are so far removed. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago. Very difficult. We didn't know the apostles. We don't even know anybody who knew the apostles. We don't even know anybody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew the apostles. So we're completely removed from the authors of this book by thousands of years. Very difficult for us to know what they're talking about. But there was a time when there were men who knew the apostles, And there was a time when there were men who knew men who knew the apostles in the church of God. And so isn't it reasonable then? Isn't it, in fact, obvious that we should turn to these men when we want to make an interpretation of the teachings of the word of God? In fact, in the Roman Catholic Church, priests essentially take an oath that they will only interpret Scripture according to the unanimous consent of the church fathers. Only interpret Scripture, what they will teach out of Scripture, has to agree with the unanimous consent, the total agreement of all of the early church fathers, these men from, say, 100 to 6, 7, 800 A.D., Take an oath. Unanimous consent. Well, some people find unanimous consent a little difficult to get to, so we lower it a little bit. Anglicans, Episcopalians talk about the Catholic consent of the fathers. It doesn't have to be unanimous, but it's kind of a general agreement. I mean, you know, you have a doctrine and you're considering it, and so you go to the early fathers and you see that, well, the vast majority of them held to particular doctrine. So, you know, we'll go with that general agreement. The Eastern Orthodox have taken it a slightly different direction. They believe that church councils that are ecumenical in nature, meaning that have representatives from all over the visible church, are in fact infallible. They're inspired. Anything they teach is inspired. Well, I'm not going to tell you that interpreting the scriptures according to the unanimous consent of the fathers is a problem in homeschooling circles. But what I'm about to describe is, and it's an old problem. In fact, this quote is from a man named William Cunningham, who was a Scottish Presbyterian in the 19th century, wrote a very good, big, fat, two-volume book called Historical Theology. And he says this, Some admit the supreme authority of Scripture as the only standard of faith, Agree with us. And they deny any proper authority in religious matters to the fathers or to the teaching of the early church. But still, they are fond of talking about the fathers in such a way as seems to imply that they do ascribe them authority or something like it after all. They talk much of the importance and necessity of studying the fathers and investigating the doctrines of the early church and of the great assistance furnished in ascertaining the meaning of Scripture and the truth of doctrine. Some men talk as if they had a vague notion of the early fathers having a kind of inferior species of inspiration, a peculiar divine guidance that differed from that of the apostles and evangelists in degree rather than in kind and somehow entitling their views and statements to more respect than those of ordinary men. Because after all, they were men who knew the apostles, or men who knew men who knew the apostles, or men who knew men who knew men who knew knew the apostles. After all, they spoke the original language at that time. Whereas we're 2,000 years removed from the Greek language. And they have this direct lineage from the apostles, so doesn't it seem likely then that they would have known the apostles' interpretations of their own works? And and so it stands to reason that their own writings would be based on the apostles' interpretations of the Word of God and the men who came after them. And so, as we see this great development of the early church in the first two or three or four hundred years, we have this very reliable source for understanding the Word of God. And this, brethren, gets right to the heart of this issue of authority, because that's what all this is driven by. We want to know what the truth is. We want security. It's, 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 it's uncomfortable if I think I might be wrong about something. And so I have to get to something I can hold on to, something something really certain and men look far and wide to find that certainty where they don't have to think anymore. They don't have to study anymore. They don't have to wrestle with the text anymore. They can just get in line, get in line. Here's here's the right line over here. Sheep on this side, line up, all aboard. Just step in, don't need to think, step right in. Early father train, leaving the station. Well, first of all, this is entirely impractical because as one author has said to make the interpretation of scripture dependent upon the unanimous consent of the fathers is to say that you are not going to interpret the scripture because there is no unanimous consent of the fathers on anything. In fact, there's barely a general consent of the fathers on anything, a kind of general agreement. The only way you can get it in fact is to abuse their their writings the same way people abuse the scriptures. So it's impractical. But more than that, and this is important, because whenever someone comes with this claim, you know you see it in the writings and in the way they talk, well, the early fathers have said and there's this appearance of very learnedness, education, Really studied these things because they've investigated the writings of these older authors and so they can tell you with authority what the early church thought and practiced and 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 thus uh, bind you by these these teachings and practices of the early church. They're very educated people who make these arguments. But there's a problem there's too few documents, too few authors. They're spread over too much time, and they come from far too wide of an area to give us anything like an authoritative testimony. Let me, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. The Reformation oh, has been now 400, nearly 500 years, which is well within the time span of the early church's relationship to the Apostles. Now, what if we decided that we needed to find out what it is these reformers really meant by their writings? And so we decided we would go down to the bookstore and we would take a random sampling of the descendants of the reformers, which is you know, evangelical Protestantism. We'll just confine it to that. We won't even allow in total wild liberalism, which you might get if you just looked at eh, Presbyterians. Let's look at that. We'll just stick with evangelical Protestantism. We'll assume we have at least half a brain. Now, what if we were to take a random sampling of, say, 25 authors at your evangelical bookstore? You might luck out and get a copy of a John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul, but he'd be the odd man out. What would you have to conclude that the reformers really meant in their writings? Pelagianism, decisional regeneration, a great concern over self-esteem and self-image, every kind of corrupt and false doctrine imaginable, and in fact virtually all of them the very opposite of what the Reformers were saying. But it will be the same method, the same exact method. Even if we just took a statistical sampling over, say, the last 500 years and randomly chose out Protestant authors... You'd get a little more balance, but you'd still have a serious problem because I submit that on balance it would weigh far more heavily towards the doctrines that are the opposite of what the Reformers taught. And it's even worse when we look at the early church because we have so few sources. For the first hundred years after the New Testament, there's a few anonymous letters and about six uh, authors, and we're not even sure that they wrote what it says they wrote. And most of it doesn't say anything. It just repeats scripture verses. You've got to get up to about 250 AD, which is almost 200 years after the time of the Apostle Paul, before you start getting any kind of volume, any kind of number of authors, and any kind of uh, volume of writing from which to make your your interpretations, your authoritative early fathers. And let's take a look at a few of these guys. They're they're a fine bunch of guys, let me tell you. Justin Martyr, writing in about 160 A.D., hundred years after the time of the Apostle Paul. He embraced uh, free will, Platonic philosophy. He exalted celibacy, uh, the, the unmarried state. And he also taught that respectable pagans had actually found Christ. Socrates and men like this. Very interesting guy. Irenaeus, 200 A.D. He held to what we would now call a Pelagian view of the will, that man has free will and is unfettered by sin. He uh, exalted Mary. And he, in fact, uh, said that he had some oral tradition from the apostles that he was going to communicate to us, except the problem is that by... <laughs> Providence, it's the very opposite of the number of things that are expressly taught in the Bible. Great early father. Clemens Alexandrinus, 200 AD, he was into Neoplatonism. He was a Pelagian. He introduced the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible, which totally destroyed any chance for rational interpretation for about the next thousand years or more. And he was completely wrong about the doctrine of the atonement and salvation and was fundamentally corrupt on it and he embraced mystical asceticism. His student, Origen in 225 A.D. was also a Neoplatonist and a Pelagian and an ascetic. He denied God's omnipotence and he also denied vicarious atonement. That means substitutionary atonement, that Christ stood in the place of you and received the punishment of sin. He also castrated himself, by the way, To fulfill the verse, some men have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to study under him, let me tell you. Tertullian, 225 AD, he was a Pelagian. He taught justification by works. He taught the merit of good works. He prayed for the dead. He had what one writer has called morose and ascetic morality. And he became a Montanist towards the end of his life, which was a heretical movement that taught that there was a new wave of the Holy Spirit speaking through a couple of female Uh, prophetesses, and he became a follower of them. Cyprian in 250 AD. Now, these guys are the early ones, okay? These are the ones, when we talk about what are called, you'll see the anti-Nicene fathers. These are the ones who are before the Nicene Creed. These are the ones who knew the guys, who knew the guy who knew the Apostle Paul. Cyprian taught that sins after conversion were remitted by good works. He also taught a kind of version of baptismal regeneration or baptismal justification. He taught an authoritarian view of ecclesiastical power that ended up giving the the impetus to the development of the idea of uh, the Pope and papal power. Not one of these men, brethren, not one, one, not one ever in any of their writings, some of which were quite substantial. Tertullian takes up several volumes in tiny minuscule print, as does Cyprian and Origen, um, many volumes of Origen, Clemens also. Not one of them gives an accurate and full statement of the biblical gospel. Not one of them ever biblically describes the doctrine of the depravity and inability of man. Not one of them gives an accurate exposition of sanctification, of the law, or of Christian liberty, and not one of them ever demonstrates a modicum of the proper method of interpreting Scripture. Not one. Anywhere. But they knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew the Apostle. Justin Martyr in 160 AD, in all likelihood, knew Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. In fact, it's, it's pretty well certain that he knew Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. And yet, already. I mean, we only have two choices here. Either these men are completely wrong, or we'd all better line up for the Church of Rome. That's it. Two choices. Now, is this a surprise? No. It's not a surprise if you know your Bible. What does Paul say shortly before his death? Take heed, therefore, to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing, grievous wolves shall enter in among you, not sparing the flock, and men shall arise from your own selves, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. What does the New Testament teach us about the time that would follow it? Does it teach us that it would be a time of great doctrinal security and authority, when the whole church of God would be united around the truth, and it would be a glorious age to which we could look to know how to interpret the Bible. Is that what the Word of God teaches us? Or does it not rather teach us, and had it not rather already begun in the New Testament, that the time after the New Testament, would be a time of moral and doctrinal decline, the rise of false prophets and heretics who would come from within the church and virtually destroy it so that we have an almost unbroken succession of error and heresy starting right in the time of the apostles and going like an upside-down pyramid till you reach the full-blown doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in, say, 700 or 800 A.D. which pretty much is the beginning and end of the early fathers. Now, you say, well, who in the world talks about the early fathers? Well, I can tell you that there's one church right here in north-central Texas, south of Dallas, uh, that you'll see them at uh, homeschool book fairs and... uh, various other places. One of the pastors there has been a rather prolific author. And this is exactly what they teach, that we need to follow the early fathers. And you will find this view making inroads within homeschooling communities. Why? Because homeschooling communities are preeminently occupied with one doctrine, and that is authority. Authority of all different kinds. Parental authority, uh, husband's authority, relationship's government authority. Authority of all different kinds. And it is only, and most of these churches that that, that they found when they found one exercised tyrannical pastoral authority. So it's no surprise to see that the logical conclusion is to go to a doctrinal authority that we can get our hands about and with a little bit of manipulation here and there, find out how to interpret this confusing scripture. Now, let me give you a case study on how this works because I don't think all this is any good without an example let's take a very provocative uh, divisive uh, difficult uh, upsetting doctrine because those are the ones we like (laughs) the issue of divorce and remarriage Whoo! talk about a way to start some fights real quick we have in the red corner <laughs> the red trunks whatever the what we'll call the libertine view anything goes you know which is increasingly prevalent in a lot of evangelical churches divorce remarriage hey it could be a great thing you know uh, any cause is a legitimate cause for divorce. Any divorce is a legitimate divorce, and any remarriage is something the church should sanction wholeheartedly. In the blue trunks, we have what we might call the classic fundamentalist view, that there is no cause ever legitimate for divorce, and all remarriages are wrong. And we have every gradation of fighter in between, each one who staked out a position, And pretty much dead smack in the center, we have actually the Reformation view. Just as a a point of history, the Reformation view has been called both libertine and oppressive. Uh, It's been called libertine by the fundamentalists, and it's been called oppressive by the libertines. So it's got a pretty good balance there. (laughs) And that is the view that there are some legitimate causes for divorce and some circumstances in which remarriage... Is sanctionable. Now, I am not about to answer this question for you right now. No, no, no. This would take many, many messages. But what I want to talk to you about is methodology. Methodology of looking at this question. In the, what I'm calling the fundamentalist view, or we can call the, for lack of a better word, the ultra-conservative view, and and I'm not trying to... uh, I'm not trying to denigrate it or speak evil of it by calling it ultra-conservative, it's just, it's the most conservative view. In the writings that defend this view, especially in the last about 20 years or so, because of some research that was done, you see an increasing reliance on an appeal to the early church fathers. In fact... I'm going to give you an example of that, right out of a little book here that I have. And this could be any book, this just happens to be a book that I own, and it's an article called A Re-Examination of the Divorce Question, It's by a guy named Paul Steele, who is a pastor from Valley Church in Cupertino, California. And Mr. Steele is quoting at length here a man named Gordon Wenham, who is an Anglican, who is a lecturer in Semitic studies at Queen's University, Belfast. And here, let's read you a little bit of this article. And just just listen to the language here that Mr. Steele is endorsing and that Mr. Wenham uses. Dr. Gordon Wenham contends that there's never a possibility of remarriage after divorce for any cause. Okay, got that out of the way. He talks about some of his, in about two sentences, he gives some of his reasons. The master stroke the masterstroke now this is an evangelical text I'm reading to you the masterstroke this is not written by a papist it's not written by a Roman Catholic the masterstroke however is the opinion of the early church fathers a position he refers to as the patristic interpretation he points out that in the 16th century Erasmus introduced the idea that's been taken over by Protestant theologians that is a bit gratuitous uh, uh, and indefensible but I'll go on uh, Dr. Wenham, using a volume by a French scholar, H. Cruzel and other sources, says this. Great weight should be given to the father's interpretation of Matthew 19:9, 9. Being closest in time to the composition of the gospels, they are most likely to have understood the original intentions of the writers. They thought and wrote in Greek with a fluency no modern scholar can match, and therefore what may seem to us to be obscure may well have appeared quite plain to them. Furthermore, we're getting both views here, actually. Furthermore, that we've talked about today. Furthermore, they are likely to have preserved memories of dominical precept and apostolic practice that guided their interpretation of the relevant New Testament passages. You know what he's talking about there? Revelation outside of Scripture that they preserved. It is therefore intrinsically probable that the patristic interpretation of this verse is the correct one. The fathers show almost total unanimity on the question. All Greek writers and Latin writers except one in the first five centuries agree that following divorce for any cause remarriage is adulterous. They identify the one dissenter as Ambrosiaster, a Latin writer of the fourth century. Uh, But his views find no echo in the 5th century Latin writers among whom Jerome and Augustine discussed the issues very fully. Uh, So, we have this learned approach, you see, uh, in which the big argument, the kind of clincher, shall we call it, you go through all your, little, your exegetical biblical arguments, but you're going to come in with the clincher. This is the closer. This is the guy who's going to get the last three strikeouts and win the game. The early fathers. Who can deny the learnedness of Mr. Gordon Wenham, who spent all of his time researching the opinions of the early fathers into the issue of divorce and remarriage, and thus proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that the, quote, entire early church was united, except for one poor guy. <clears throat> Dr. Yes. Don't forget. One poor guy in the fourth century was united in this fundamentalist or ultra conservative view of the question. Yeah, that sounds very powerful. That's, I mean, boy, you know, how can we refute that? Well, now let's get to a few small facts, which always get in the way of these things. Let's just talk about this historically. Because I want you to see both things. A, we shouldn't even argue this way, and B, it's not even legitimate. He, he's, 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 for lack of a better word, confused or dishonest. From 60 A.D. to 225 A.D., I could find exactly two references in the early fathers. One was Justin Martyr who said, twice, the twice married are sinners... And he, remember, he's already 160 A.D., a hundred years after the Apostle Paul. And the other reference was in an apocryphal book called the Shepherd of Hermas, that nobody even knows who wrote it. And all he does is cite the Matthew verse and give something that could be interpreted this way. To get anything like a comprehensive discussion of this matter, we have to wait till, till Tertullian in 225 A.D. Now, 150 years or more past the time of the Apostle Paul. But Tertullian, you see, there's a problem. Tertullian doesn't just say that remarrying after divorce is wrong, he says that any second marriage is wrong. Any second marriage. He also says that celibacy is a higher. Religious condition to be in than the married state, and he virtually equates all intercourse, including marital intercourse, with sin. And what I want you to understand is that his views are not the odd man out. Whenever anybody discusses these issues after that time, they all take the same opinions. Exalting celibacy. And where did that lead? Where did that doctrine go? Monasticism. Denying all second marriages as lawful and equating all sexual intercourse as sinful, leading to the Roman Catholic interpretation of being conceived in sin as not having to do with uh, total depravity, but having to do with the fact that marital intercourse is sinful, so therefore. You're conceived in sin. Now, we do get some men past this time who write about this subject and who even write about it rather extensively. But do you know how long you have to wait? You got Gordon Wenham citing Augustine and Jerome in the 5th century. That's the 400s. And yet, Mr. Wenham says being closest in time to the composition of the Gospels, they are most likely to have understood the original intentions of the writers and may have preserved, likely to have preserved memories of dominical precept and apostolic practice. That is a 400-year game of pass it along. But I'm supposed to think that Augustine and Jerome have preserved memories of dominical precept and apostolic practice, and because they're only 400 years away from the Apostle Paul, they know how what Paul really meant. And I'm supposed to believe that, even though when we say all the early fathers, we're talking about a handful of men who even discussed this subject, a handful of men over hundreds of years, and the ones who actually discuss it in anything like a comprehensive fashion are hundreds. Are the ones at the later end of that. And all of them are deeply corrupted by Neoplatonism and asceticism. And all of them have views of the Gospel itself that are so badly corrupted that we would not admit them as members of this church. And... Virtually never, may I add, do you get actual exegesis. By that I mean they don't take the Bible and open it up and discuss and compare verses. What you get is, the view of the church is, bang. But you know, even if we could say, well, he's all wrong about the early fathers and what they thought, and it's not a statistical representation and so on and so forth, really, there's a deeper question. Should we be looking here at all? For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God no man knows, but the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, and we also speak these things, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What in the world is he talking about? Alright. The ultimate standard or rule for interpreting the meaning of the Scriptures is not, it is not the writings or the historical tradition of interpretation within the church, especially that of the early church fathers. The ultimate rule or standard for interpreting the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture itself. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. This is the single most important rule of interpretation that we can make in applying Sola Scriptura. What does it mean, Scripture alone? It means when you come to interpret the Scripture, that the rule or the standard for interpreting the Scripture is the Scripture itself and not something outside of it. Not the apostolic fathers. Not your Uncle Joe. Not... uh, Not... Uh, the the consent of, uh, of evangelicals in 1978. It's the Word of God itself that is the rule or standard for its own interpretation. Because the Scriptures have only one author, and that is the Spirit of God. And so he knew everything he was going to write before he wrote it, he didn't write one part and say, Oh, I've got to fix that later. It's comprehensive. It's written by one author. And so, if there's a difficulty to understand any particular part of his word, you consider it in light of everything else that he's written. And that standard, the scripture itself interpreting itself, that is the rule, that is the authority. The controlling authority, to use an Al Gore phrase, the controlling legal authority for the interpretation of Scripture is not the early church fathers, but the Scripture itself, and nothing else can serve this function. Now, we're going to look more deeply into this as we continue this series. Look more deeply into this question. What does it mean for Scripture to interpret scripture for it to be the controlling authority we're going to see how we can get out of that concept rules and and a way of using the scripture that I believe leads us to truth but I just want to leave you with one thought if we can't rely on the tradition of the apostolic fathers even though they were the closest in time And they knew Greek. And they might have preserved memories of what the apostles thought. If we can't rely on these men, how little can we rely on any other tradition to control our interpretation? If if we can't rely on these teachers because they were so fundamentally in error about basic doctrine, and they were men who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew the apostles, how much less ought we to rely on people today to be our teachers who are in fundamental error about important basic biblical doctrine What happens when you follow a blind guide? You both fall into a pit. Next time you hear about what the early fathers taught, I hope that your bamboozle alert will come on, loud and clear. I hope that you will realize that you are dealing with a person who has abandoned the most basic tenet of scriptural interpretation, which is that scripture interprets scripture and not a bunch of guys from five centuries after the time of the apostle who we, who we can't even credibly classify as, as evangelicals in the most generous sense of the word. And above all, I hope that you will make the further application. The reason they are so unreliable, not only the general principle of Scripture interprets Scripture, but, my goodness, men who who fail to grasp basic doctrine. If, If you are talking about people who cannot teach to you the doctrines that are obvious and fundamental in the Word of God, if you cannot go to them to learn the truths of sovereign grace and the fallen nature of man and the nature of Christ's atonement, if you cannot go to them to learn those things Why would you put yourself in their hands for anything else? Issues that are vastly more complicated to interpret from Scripture. What what right, what confidence can you have that they can interpret any part of Scripture if they can't teach you Paul's most important doctrines. No confidence. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank You, Lord, that that You have given us in Your Word a perfect standard. That rightly using Your Word, we can find the truth with the blessing and enlightenment of Your Holy Spirit as we prayerfully and sincerely and dedicatedly search Your Word according to the principles of interpretation that You, Yourself, teach us. We thank You, Lord, that we need not rely on hoping, hoping that we have preserved some apostolic tradition through 2,000 years and five languages and a dozen cultures and, 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 and wars and fires and loss of documents and corruptions and, and apostasies and blasphemies that have all intervened. We don't have to rely on that chain that has been broken a thousand times. But we can bypass all of that And we can go to Your Word. We can read Your Word. And we can understand Your Word. And we, furthermore, Lord, we thank You that we need not be bound in conscience by the teachings of men who cannot and do not embrace and teach Your most precious doctrines but that we may and ought to turn from them, to turn our backs on them, to walk away from them, to not speak to greet them as you say in your word, recognizing that they are blind guides and clouds without water Men who will ultimately, whether intentionally or unintentionally, deceive us and delude us and bind us and guide us, not in the path of truth and righteousness, but in the paths of error and falsehood. We praise You, Lord, that You have not left Your church without pastors and teachers, we pray that You would raise up more, but most of all, we pray, we pray that You would open our eyes and hearts that we might truly understand Your Word and how to read Your Word and use Your Word. For in this Word, we find Your Son, Jesus Christ, and the revelation of Him that is the salvation of our souls, the sanctification of our of our lives and the eternal blessedness and glory of our redemption. We praise Your name in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.